where you can fail at your job, get fired, rehired, and get a $700 billion tip. Come on in, sit right down, and fill up your pockets, yeah. Mass media, information overload. Welcome to America. Distracted by the features of the iPhone. Got an application to In other words, situation. taken by a pretty face. Somebody's watching you. Welcome to America. Hook up later at the iPad. And we can meet at my place. says is hip. We will not raise your taxes. Read our lips. Celebrity, but don't be late. Everybody and their mama got a sex tape. Welcome to America. We snatch bass players, not purses. Keep playing, it gets worse. Get down. Hit. Welcome to America. 
everybody welcome to weekly review with roman today it is friday april 23rd 2021 thank you so much for tuning in starting off with some music as per usual first song we heard was by the jayhawks waiting for the sun and then we heard prince welcome to america and if you're looking for that song it's the number two uh welcome to america and we've got a show for you all today. Lots to share, lots of information, as well as music. So thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. Yay! Uh, we are in San Francisco, and we are on Ramatush Ohlone land. And for more information, including history, places to donate, and action items folks can take to be in solidarity with indigenous communities, please go to weeklyrev.org forward slash land dash acknowledgement. Uh, we've got a lot of links there as well as a thread of native news outlets to follow and uh, ways you can help preserve the West Berkeley Shell Mound site. So please do check that out. I'm going to try not to talk so fast, but there's a lot to say. Ah, Also, uh, the majority of the po uh, show will be me not talking. Uh, I'll be sharing a couple of other uh, news programs that have a lot of really good information in them. So the first will be from KPFA um, with Kat Brooks, and then following that there will be... Uh, uh, Ralph Nader News Hour, who will be speaking with uh, an author who is sharing a new book, uh, details about a new book that covers all of <laughs> uh, W's war crimes, and uh, that, that's something else to to consider too, is just how ugh, monstrous uh, regimes have been in this country, and also just acknowledging that they did have the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial and how much of a relief it was, and also just how fucking ludicrous it is that for uh, a cop to murder someone on tape and for that to not necessarily be a, a guaranteed guilty verdict uh, just shows a lot about the the country that we're living in and also of course this person being uh, found guilty does not bring back George Floyd and even if these cops are found guilty does not bring back any of the people they've killed or the the distress that loved ones have gone through with having loved ones taken from them and think about also other things that cops have done in terms of like arresting people and how separating families and just this ongoing uh, destruction of families and human beings' lives. lives. So it's, there's, a, there's so much to be done. And as I share that, I did want to share an upcoming event that's happening next week. And uh, this is happening on Tuesday, April 27th, 2021, from 5 p.m. Pacific time to 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. And this is White People and Defunding Police, a webinar with Serge and Mariam Kaba. And there's a Facebook invite with this. And we'll also share a link on our uh, website, weeklyrev.org. And you can also check it out right now to register at bit.ly forward slash white PPL defund. And I'll read a little bit about the description here. For many of us, defunding the police is a new idea. Most white people in our lives have beliefs about policing that are shaped by our racist culture, not reality or history. How do we help more people in our lives understand what defund means and move them to a place of supporting this powerful demand? How can those of us who are new to this demand deepen our understanding of what frontline organizers are calling for? Join Serge and Miriam Kaba, organizer, writer, and leader in the transformative justice and abolition movement as we explore what we mean when we talk about abolition, what abolition actually looks like on the ground, and how you can plug into the work. If this webinar is full, 
they say we will be live streaming on the Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash showing up for racial justice. And they will update this page once they confirm their live ASL interpreters and live captioning. So again, um, we'll be sharing this link on our page, weeklyrev.org. And this is happening again on Tuesday, April 27th, uh, from 5 p.m. Pacific time to 6.30 p.m. So I did want to share that. Also, um, I want to send a big thank you out to Kangs for sharing some links that will be, the radio links will be sharing on the show today. I took uh, about five days, four or five days off Twitter, and it was fucking great for my mental health. Of course, there's that feeling of, oh, I'm not going to find out about something. And of course, there are ways to find out about what's going on in the world. So I recommend doing that if you're feeling a little bit trapped in social media. And it's, it's funny because uh, recognize that uh, addiction is the opposite of connection. So sometimes when we're not feeling connected, we want to go to something that might help fill that fill that void. And then one can feel even less connected once we are part of that social media network. So uh, I've gone back on a little bit today just because I did want to go to a few headlines before we start playing the other clips. And um, But recommending that for folks, it's pretty pretty good to get off for a little bit. Uh, you know what I mean. Uh, whichever, however you want to interpret that. So <laughs> I did want to share a couple of links. I'll post these full articles on our page, but I did want to get to, as I mentioned before, other folks' voices talking. So I wanted to share um, a headline uh, of an article, uh, How Local TV Can Push Viewers to the Political Right. Living in an area with a TV news station owned by Sinclair, the U.S.'s second largest local TV company makes viewers less likely to vote for Democratic presidential candidates and lowers their approval of Democratic presidents, suggests new study. And this is from the Academic Times, and we'll also uh, share the link to that. And I do recall there was a video that was made a couple years ago, again, it's hard to keep track of time, of many news anchors from around the country all reading the exact same words and just how fucking weird is that? Um, and how how can you trust someone if they're all reading these uh, pre-edited uh, uh, words? That doesn't sound quite right. The idea that they're all sharing the exact same uh, point of view seems pretty disturbing and in an ideal world, we, you know, it, it's, I'm reminded of that this past year. I know it, a lot of us have felt a little bit more isolated than previously. And when I've been able to connect with friends, especially people I haven't talked to for a while, it's so great to like learn more information and hear different perspectives and also hear about commonalities and how much we can learn from each other. And at, and if we're, I'm thinking about in terms of like the, with the media and how it's all just one voice, especially if it's like uh, owned by big business, who is specifically anti-worker and anti-the earth, uh, anti-environmentalism, anti-people living in peace, uh, it's going to definitely indoctrinate a lot of people and cause a lot of harm. So uh, another uh, another reason just to expand your outlets if you are able. And I did want to share some, again, the positive news on this program is often when negative things are prevented from happening, question mark, but period, because yes. And it used to be back when we started the show is more like, oh, cool, they're, you know, decriminalizing marijuana in different states. And that is all well and good, especially if they are, I mean, for the most important reason is to ensure that folks are decarcerated, folks who have been arrested for having uh, cannabis. Uh, so again, it's like, wait, that shouldn't have been illegal in the first place. However, it's positive that 
we're moving uh, in a hopefully a, a positive direction. So I did want to share this tweet from yesterday. This is one of the few tweets I saw when I logged in today. Uh, the veto is sustained. HB 1298 will not become law. And this is from North Dakota, I believe. Let me, uh, I did look this up earlier because they are having, there are numerous states that have tried to put forward all these anti-trans bills and again it's anything from and they're all fucking horrible they are anywhere from trans youth not being allowed to play sports to any trans folks accessing health care so of course this is fucking terrifying and there are families who are uh, having to move uh, consider moving because of these draconian just disturbing laws so this was from north dakota so again good news at hb 12 98 will not become law. So that's good. And this was shared by Libby Skarin, uh, L-I-B-B-Y-S-K-A-R-I-N. I'll share a little bit more about that on our webpage for more details if you are looking to read more. And there was also another one that did not pass that I read about, and perhaps there hopefully are a lot more. Oh, yeah, HB Bill 1298, which would have been an act to create and enact a new section of Chapter 14-02.4. And these are just so fucking – can you imagine just, like, fucking making up a law just to fuck with people, like, marginalized populations who are already having a tough time? Like, it's just so, like, I just can't wrap my head around it. Like, if you're going to make a – I don't necessarily believe in, like, the idea of making laws, but if you're going to, why not uh, make a law holding uh, war criminals accountable? or uh, stop fossil fuels, or ensure that billionaires uh, pay their taxes and then, uh, you know, have to answer for their crimes. You know, like, things that would actually help the world. Okay, so I'm going to read this. Uh, So it's the North Dakota Century Code, which relates to participation in athletic events exclusively for males or females. And again, that totally just disregards uh, non-binary folks, et cetera. Uh, And to provide for a legislative management study, which is so fucking gross. And all of these study, these quote unquote studies about uh, trans youth is really just giving cis folks uh, licensure to uh, pretty much be pedophiles. It's fucking disgusting. So I'm glad that this uh, has been vetoed. That's good news. Okay. That's where we're at in the world. Yeah. So uh, another bill that thankfully is not going to be going into law is from Montana. Montana Senate votes down bill to prohibit gender transition surgeries for minors. Now, I'm of the opinion that uh, if kids or whomever needs surgery to survive, they should get it. But uh, apparently there are some uh, people out there who don't think so. So this is an article. We'll share it also on the website. You can find it at KTVQ, ktvq.com, written by Jonathan Ambarian. Um, so it's, I'm going to name the fucking asshole who sponsored it, uh, John Fuller from Whitefish. And I wonder, I know there's like a town in Montana that was like a lot of right wing folks were congregating. And I don't know if it's Whitefish or not, but it sounds like it could be. Okay, so it was a set for the, okay, Le- leaders delayed the vote. And uh, Senator Bryce Bennett from Masola uh, moved to indefinitely postpone the bill. And once a bill has been indefinitely postponed, it can only be revived if lawmakers vote to reconsider their action. HB 427 would have prevented healthcare providers from performing a surgery on someone younger than 18 to treat gender dysphoria. <sighs> so they, they do two sides this article a little bit. However, it's, uh, I'm really glad that it's been prohibited. And as someone who, I mean, I had to, 
wait just because I didn't even know it was an option when I was younger. And it would have been, I might not even have had to have the surgery if I had known younger, I could have gone on hormone blockers. Anyway, long story short, um, I'm glad that this uh, bill has been voted down. Let me get to a couple more headlines. I know there's a lot here. This is a lot. I don't mean to gloss over it. It's just that there's so much happening, and also we're living in the information age when there's inter like anyone can share information at any time, and there's so many different platforms. There's so much going on. So I also wanted to share a link. Um, Castillo would expel world's main drug cartel from Peru, the DEA, and the U.S. military. I found this in the uh, communism subreddit. Uh, so... We'll be sharing that as well online. This came out on April 21st. So again, weeklyrev.org. We'll be sharing that link later today. So it's also big news. And also in Manhattan, uh, there people are going to people. <laughs> um, uh, Manhattan to stop prosecuting prostitution, part of nationwide shift, which is great news. Of course, sex work should be decriminalized. And so that is great. And um there is like a paywall i believe so there's a clip of the article here on the subreddit the district attorney cyrus r vance jr moved to dismiss thousands of cases dating back decades amid a growing movement to change the criminal justice system's approach to prostitution so again that's good news and again it shouldn't have been illegal in the first place but positive i don't want to you know positive news okay i'm going to play a bit of music while i get the uh news clips set up and that then i'll be checking in afterwards so please do stay tuned and here's a song called satisfied by the staves Shelf and you won't ask why 
I know, I know you thought the song was over, but that's incorrect because life is going on and the energy never dies, does it? No, it doesn't. Ooh, that's why I remembered you from a month ago when you said song wow it's a very loud bird that was <laughs> goodness okay that song is called lessons from my mistakes by live.e or live i'm not sure how to pronounce uh the artist's name but liv.e and before that we heard satisfied by the staves and now we're going to play a clip from up front from kpfa you can listen in at 94.1 during the week or check out kpfa.org this is from april 22nd it's on around 7 a.m and this is uh cat brooks and this starts this clip starts around the one hour and eight minute mark and we'll play about um about roughly half an hour of this uh this newscast and then we'll be back afterwards Easily to the in the House and be sent to the Senate an identical statehood bill passed oh. the House in 2020. Thought I had it set but up quickly right. died in the then Republican uh, controlled Senate. Be Supporters say DC statehood is soon. a racial justice issue. It would be the state with the highest proportion of black residents. With a forecast for the San Francisco Bay. Okay, I'm just going to do a brief plug for this studio while uh, we hear the weather forecast for. Yesterday, mutinyradio.fm shows here every day of the week. Good morning. It is 8.08, and you're listening to Upfront. I'm Janine Etter. I'm Kat Brooks, and on Tuesday, as the world was receiving the news that Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd, would be convicted on all three charges, Bay Area community members were receiving the news that law enforcement had killed again. 26-year-old Mario Gonzalez was at a park in Alameda when the police arrived following a phone call that there was, I don't want to use the word, that there was a man there that, that, that folks in Alameda apparently didn't think belonged there. Uh, police say a scuffle ensued, and Mario, and the police say Mario had a medical emergency. Uh, I continue to say the police say um, because there is a lot of concern that what the police are saying is not what actually happened, what, what actually happened. He died at the hospital before his family even had a chance to arrive. We are joined this morning by Gerardo Jerry Gonzalez, the brother of Mario Gonzalez. Good morning, Jerry. 
Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank and you. And we are also, also joined by Linda Sanchez, the Director of Programs with Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Jerry, I, I, so when I when I do these pieces, I, I, I want to start on, on the person, right? Because your brother's so much more than what happened to him. And so, if you if you're willing, if you could just spend a, a few minutes or as long as you want, um, talking about who Mario was. Yes, of course. Well, he's the to begin with. He's the oldest of four brothers. He's my mother's firstborn. And he basically helped raise us half the time. Um, I had a father who wasn't always there, but my brother, he, he was the person I looked up to a lot when I was young. And, you know, Ma Mario was a, he was a father. He was a noble man. He was a caretaker for our, for our 22, for our 22 year old autistic brother who now is like severely distraught. He won't eat. He won't sleep. He won't use the bathroom. He won't move like, this second we're struggling with him right now and we're definitely feeling the impact of of not having mario here and it's um it's severely catastrophic what what has happened um but back back um but yeah um yeah mario was a, a kind of a man he, he was not a violent person he never had any hate towards police hate towards anybody he has a four-year-old boy he will not be out doing any suspicious or malicious behavior, as they said. And he's worth a lot more than to just have his life taken away at the hands of the um, the Alameda Police Department. And we want justice. What does that mean for, for you and your family, Jerry? I did, what does that, uh, what does justice mean for you? Uh, yeah. talk about, you had some very clear demands um, yeah. last night. So. Yeah, so some of our demands, what we want is we want um, immediate release of the body cam footage that was worn by the officers that were on call. Um, we want we want um, my brother's body so that we can perform an independent autopsy. We want the names and um, the names of and history of the officers involved um, who were on call to. To make to see if they have any history of doing actions of this nature, and and we want a private investigation. Linda, help our listeners. I mean, the, it was said several times last night, but but help our listeners understand why people last night were referring to Alameda as Clan Alameda. Yeah, I think historically, right, Alameda has been. Um, a very white-centric city that will prioritize the needs of its white residents at the cost, um, and yeah, at the cost of its black and brown residents. You know, in speaking with Mario's mom, she was telling me that she that he actually loved Alameda because you know, for him, he grew up in deep East Oakland, um, where oftentimes you know the conditions were rough. And so she did tell me, you know, it's not it was not uncommon for him to be in Alameda just walking around. He really just enjoyed being out there. Right, and unfortunately, one of the things that he enjoyed the most cost him his life simply by the fact because he is a brown man. And when they got the call that there was somewhat suspicious activity, we're not even sure if that was in reference to Mario, but we do know that he was targeted and we do know that maybe he was and that he probably was targeted because of the color of his skin. 
and that we've seen that trend uh, across the country. Uh, of course, uh, ex um, we're more aware of it, right, because uh, of social media. And you've got things like Barbecue Becky, and I can't remember what we dubbed the woman in the park who, who got at the, the brother that was walking the dog. And there have been conversations, right, about legislation, people wanting to pass legislation um, for people making false calls um, uh, or, or race-based calls to, to law enforcement because of the fear of this very type of thing happening. Um, is there any interest, desire, demand to, to figure out who, who placed the calls and, and have some accountability I, there as well? I think absolutely right, because in the, the area where, he, where Mario was murdered, it's right in front of a, of a shopping center, you know, that has stores such as Trader Joe's, um, you know, a Safeway. And so I think for us, right, like we definitely want some level of accountability in terms of who placed the call because the call also, when we read the report, it was of a, uh, of a possible theft. So there was no actual crime that took place, right? It was just presumption. And so for us, that we definitely want accountability in terms of who placed the call, right? If it was one of the store employees, if it was a resident. Um, but also more than anything, we also want reform. I think more than anything, we want reform because, as mentioned, Red Alameda is notorious for, you know, for, for their police officers really profiling um, black and brown residents and black and brown folks that visit Alameda. And so for us, you know, to protect the lives of other people of color, we need to not just demand justice, accountability, but we also must demand reform. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I moved here 13 years ago, that was one of the first things black people told me was do not be in Alameda at night, right? And even in the daytime, get in, do whatever you got to do there and, and get out. Um, and, and I've adhered to that uh, my entire 13 years uh, here. Jerry, you're supposed to be away at college, correct? You're, you're here now. Yeah, 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 I'm supposed to be. I'm, I was actually supposed to be back yesterday. And you're going to stay here and, and fight for, for justice for your brother. Yeah, yeah. I came on Friday to celebrate my mom's birthday, which was on the 20th of this week. And we got the news on um, on Monday the 19th. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay here and fight. How can community best support you and your family? You, you said last night something I found incredibly powerful. You said, you know, we don't need condolences we need you to, to to fight yeah yeah and by by what i mean by saying that i don't need condolences i need people willing to fight that means i need i need um because for with these type of things we need we need to gather as a community to really to really have a chance in this fight and it's a, it's gonna be a long battle we know that we're aware of that and therefore Simply telling me you're sorry, it won't be really that helpful. We need people willing to fight. Speaking of that, following the press conference uh, last night, um, the mayor of, of Alameda uh, immediately approached me, um, you know, talking about how upset she was, how distraught she was, how she couldn't believe that this happened. Um, did she ultimately make contact with you and your family? And what are your words, what are your messages to her? Um, no, she did not contact any of us. Um, I heard she was there, but no, she didn't, she didn't come up to any of us or tell us anything. Um, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, so my message is, I mean, there's no point. What's the point in being sorry if, 
you know, my brother's life was taken. I'm sorry ain't gonna bring him back, you know? Like, what are you gonna do about it? Like, what's, what are the actions? The actions need to be taken. I don't need sorries, I need actions. Linda, in terms of actions, um, you know, final um, 60 seconds we have here. Um, one of the things that, that was tragically beautiful, I guess, uh, was that, that it was a sea of black and brown faces uh, that, that were there last night. So talk about the importance of black brown solidarity in this fight, and then for folks who want to plug into any upcoming organizing efforts, um, let the people know how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think for us from the very beginning, when Jerry reached out to us, um, it was the black and brown organizations that Courage and Anti-Police Terror Project that stepped up to the role and organized and mobilized. Um, one, because we, you know, these communities really understand the pain, right, of being, of being murdered, of being lynched in the streets. And so for us, it wasn't even a question of whether, you know, we, we, they stood in solidarity with us, but it was a matter of how do we jump to action. Um, because again, we're seeing, right, like disproportionate amount of black and brown folks who are being killed by the police and police are walking away, not being held accountable. Um, and so, you know, for us, we needed to make that very clear. Um, and so that was, a re that was clearly, clearly reflected yesterday in who showed up to the action of well, predominantly black and brown folks. Um, and so we were just very overjoyed by that fact. And in terms of people taking action, um, you know, follow us on our Instagram page, Justice for, uh, and that's the number four, Justice for Mario Gonzalez. We are going to start a support network because we are going to start a, a campaign around Mario. And so it's going to be an, an uphill battle, right? We understand that it's not going to be something quick. And so people who are ready to invest in the long run, not just for justice for Mario, but for reform, so please contact us via our Instagram page. Um, but we also have a GoFundMe right now. We are trying to raise funds for Mario's four-year-old son, for Efrain who are two of the people who mostly depended on, Mar on Mario and without him right now, they just don't know. We just don't know, you know, how we're going to support them. So the best way right now is to get them some funding, some resources to meet their needs. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thank you both so much for, um, for joining us this morning. Um, Jerry, uh, my love and, and, and solidarity to you and your family. Thank you. We have been speaking to Jerry Gonzalez, the brother of Mario Gonzalez, who died while in the custody of the Alameda, Alameda, excuse me, Alameda Police Department, as well as Linda Sanchez with Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice. Tuesday was a rough day. It was supposed to be a day of celebration. And what I've been what I've been saying to people is, you know, when we got the when we got the news that that George that Derek Chauvin was going to be convicted or had been convicted of all three charges. It took me, my phone started to ring off the hook. It took me uh, almost two hours just to be able to get upstairs to my 15-year-old daughter and, and tell her. My 15-year-old daughter has grown up in this movement, right? She's been under movement tables uh, since she's one. Um, to go upstairs and told her we won, right? I, the very, I can't even think of, of times when I've been able to say that to her. And within half an hour, I had to go back upstairs and tell her, that a 16-year-old child that looked just like her and shot four times center mass by a police officer in Columbus, Ohio. That child's name is Micaiah Bryant. Here to talk about that is Treva Lindsay, Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Good morning, Treva. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, excuse me if I sound exhausted, but I am, mm. as I imagine Black women and people are 
Absolutely. Across this country. I'm just, I'm just exhausted and fed up and tired of having these conversations. Um, tell me what, what you understand to have happened um, on, on Tuesday with 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. I'm just going to keep saying um, her age because um, immediately, right, she was, they started to age her. A young woman. Yes. I want to talk to you about that a little more in depth. Well, let's start with what you understand happened on Tuesday. <clears throat> Absolutely, and I, and I want to honor that as these details are piling in and what we still don't know and the ways that we approach stories about Black girls so often leaves their personhood, their humanity out of it, and so. I am reluctant to talk about details that in many ways have been filtered through the police and the media who also has a deep police bias in terms of framing what happened. So we do know that there was a call made to the police. In fact, that there were two calls made to Columbus police about someone fearing that they were being attacked, being jumped. We believe that call to be Micaiah calling someone outside of her uh, foster home that she was in. So Micaiah was also in the foster care system, which is another carceral system that has a disparate impact on Black families, and particularly Black girls. And within seconds of arriving on the scene um, and seeing this altercation unfolding, the police officer, uh, Officer Nicholas Reardon, shoots, as you mentioned earlier, Micaiah four times, center mass, um, as the other person she was in the altercation with at the moment runs off screen in that moment. Um, Micaiah later succumbed to these fatal wounds at a hospital not too far from where the incident happened. And immediately, the community was riled. Immediately, folks came out of their homes, were like, why did this happen? How did this happen? Asking the questions. We have a cop on the scene saying, blue lives matter. Immediately, right. in the aftermath of a 16-year-old Black girl, and thank you for repeating her age, 16-year-old Black girl being killed. How does Blue Lives Matter um, even figure into this? And the timing of this, right? We learned that a verdict would be announced in the Chauvin trial um, it, it, during the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, the second call that we have on document with this came in at 4.33, and Micaiah was... Um, essentially dead or was had the shots that would lead to her death uh, by 4.44 p.m. So, I mean, literally in the scope of the time when we learned the verdict that there would be a punitive outcome for what happened to George Floyd on May 25th, 2020, we had to once again, you didn't even get a breath. We didn't even get a breath here in Columbus, to be honest, because that news broke almost simultaneously that a, at the time we heard a 15-year-old black girl had been right. shot and killed. Yes. So I, and so I want to talk about this, this, the, the, the way in which, um, they, they, they deny our humanity, right. By, by not even allowing our children to be children. So, and I was actually impressed with, with us because we peeped that immediately as media started to talk about her as, as a young woman. Right, erasing the fact that this was a test. Yes, absolutely. And we see this. We 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 know the research on this. A study that was done by the Georgetown Law Center in 2017 once again verified the incredible research of people like Monique Morris, 
who have talked about the adultification of black girls, that we don't see them as children. We don't assign them the qualities that we tend to assign children, with the, whether that be innocence or that they're going to make mistakes or they're going to have reactions to things that aren't adult reactions to things and situations. And yet we see them as adults. And the compounded problem of that is that by seeing black children as black adults, you then see them facing the kind of violence that black adults face. It's still anti-blackness shaping this. So whenever people talk to me about the adultification of black girls, I'm like, now they're battling two huge violent realities. The reality of being a black girl seen as a black adult and subsequently the reality of being perceived as a black adult who's also criminalized and too easily violated by state actors like police. The, the other thing that, that hit me, you know, in, incredibly hard on, on Tuesday, and I've been talking about it ever since, was what, what we're not going to see, what, what we're not seeing. I mean, I'm seeing it because my, my news feed, you know, uh, ticks up in a particular way. Um, you know, my Facebook feed ticks in a particular way um, because I do this work. Um, but, but Say Her Name was created in 2015 because we don't, we don't talk about this, right? We don't talk about the fact that Black girls and Black women are also... Um, victims of, of state violence. Um, Absolutely. And, Absolutely, and I'm concerned that that, that we're not going to we're not going to talk about Micaiah Bryant the way we need to talk about Micaiah Bryant, and that the the upsurge, the swelling of protests and people in the streets behind a black girl, which would be required to get any kind of accountability out of a judicial system, is just not going to happen. And unfortunately, I'm inclined to agree with you. We just haven't seen that groundswell. I mean, the, the reality is, in, in the long list of names I could give you of Black women and girls who've been killed by police, and I want to add in here also sexually violated by police, uh, I think the two names that come to mind the most are Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor. And I don't think we actually come to know Breonna Taylor were it not for George Floyd. I think that we saw an incredible local groundswell after her killing in March of 2020. But most people across the country had not heard her name until May of 2020, two months after she was killed by police in Louisville, Kentucky. And so, and of course, there was no one who received any punitive uh, punitive charges as a result of her being killed as she slept in bed in her home. And so we don't often see that kind of groundswell around Black women and girls because, one, we don't acknowledge them as victims of state violence, and two, the compounding forces of anti-Black racism, anti-Blackness, and misogyny mean that we're unable to see Black girls as viable. And by that, I mean able to be harmed, vulnerable, and impervious and, and to pain. And so we see Micaiah, and I've seen all these comments of like, well, she should have done X, Y, and Z. Man. What about the other Black girl? What about this? And I'm like, there is a situation in which everybody on that scene lives. The people she was fighting, the people that she was in the altercation with. I don't want a world in which we say there's a scarcity of life possible in situations. I want an abundant approach to the ways that we talk about preserving Black life. And every Black life that was there deserved to be here today. We deserve to be getting another dope TikTok video from Micaiah today of her mm -hmm. doing her hair and dancing to Bryson Tiller or whoever it may be. We, She deserved that. 
And that was robbed in that moment. Shiva Lindsay, I unfortunately have to leave it there. That's the, the end of, of this segment. I hope you will come back on our show. Thank you for coming on today. And have Thank you so much for having me. me. Yes, ma'am. I'm going to add to the names that, that Shiva uh, gave us. Natasha McKenna, Miriam Carey, Yvette Henderson, Rakia Boyd. I could go on and on. That takes us, uh, Treva Lindsay, sorry, is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the Ohio University in Columbus, Ohio. That takes us to 8.30 in the morning here on Upfront on Cat Brooks. All right. So again, this is from uh, us from Upfront. You can find more at kpfa.org, and we'll also provide a link to this uh, interview over on uh, weeklyrev.org take a bit of a music break and then we'll be back with uh, some more so please do stay tuned you were lost and got lucky came upon the shore found you a conquering america you spoke of peace wage a war while you were conquering america
week review a couple of tracks there first uh, america by tracy chapman favorite of mine and then night shift uh from the night shift soundtrack by quarter flash <clears throat> which is a movie that came out in 82 with uh henry winkler and michael keaton and shelly long and it, it talks about sex work and it's uh, problematic in many ways one can imagine of uh, a comedy from the early 80s talking about sex workers and uh it has its issues, and uh, I'll I'll leave it at that. Uh, that song's on the soundtrack, and I do like that song. And uh, it, it, I don't know what else to say about it. Anyway, definitely a shift in, in tone for sure, but I've been meaning to play that song on the show for a while, so here we go. All right, coming up next is going to be uh, from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, which I didn't know existed, um, and it does. So this is going to be an interview with uh, Stephen Markoff, who's the author of a new book called The Case Against... George W. Bush, and I'm sure there's a lot of, oh, fuck that guy. Anyway, so I'm going to, I haven't listened to this yet, so eagerly awaiting this, and you, we'll post the link to this uh, show as well on our website, weeklyrev.org, so please do stay tuned. Again, this is a unique program for listeners. Yes, if we had to make a list of the people who have profited off of Donald Trump's presidency, we'd be here for a while. For some, they got financial gain, others political power, or a boost to their careers. One man on that list saw his public image go from walking punchline to elder statesman, and that was President George W. Bush. What a gift Donald Trump was to George W. Bush. 
Albert Bush never dreamt that he would see someone the worst at being the president within his lifetime. Donald Trump has played a convenient rodeo clown for the presidency, distracting the American public from the atrocities of administration's past. So what is George W. Bush's true legacy? Well, if you ask our guest, Stephen Markoff, Bush's legacy is a whole bunch of crimes. And we'll be discussing Mr. Markoff's book, The Case Against George W. Bush, which lays out the case for three crimes that he alleges Bush committed during his presidency. Then if we have time, Ralph will answer some more of your listener questions. As always, we will check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's put George Bush on trial. David? Stephen Markoff is the founder of several public service educational websites, including ProCon.org, which is incredible. And he's the author of The Case Against George W. Bush. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Stephen Markoff. Good morning. Thank you, David. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's very rare that someone goes back and presents the case against violations by high political officials, as, as you have done. There's a tendency in American society of, well, let's have bygones be bygones and forget about it. As you say in your preface, quote, chronicling how Bush, as president and our commander-in-chief, used secrecy, fraud, and deceit to scare our country into the Iraq war, which helps us better understand and study his actions in hopes that the lessons learned will help keep our nation from falling prey to such presidential trickery in the future. End quote. That was one of the reasons for your book. And it is a book that has a very powerful foreword by Richard Clark, who is the national security anti-terrorist advisor in the White House to both President Bill Clinton and, for quite a while, President George W. Bush. He was a holdover. And he makes it very clear, and I think this is also your position based on all the documentation, that there were three violations that Bush can be prosecuted for, perhaps. The criminal laws are not suspended for presidents after they leave office, and there's really no statute of limitation. And he said, one, quote, first, Bush ignored warnings about the serious threat from al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. They were very detailed warnings, by the way, as you show in your book the case against George W. Bush. Second, Mr. Clark said, quote, Bush ordered the invasion of Iraq in violation of international law when Iraq had uninvolved in 9-11 and offered no imminent threat to the U.S. And third, quote, Bush authorized the use of torture and denied prisoners due process, both acts in violation of international law. Uh, one might add uh, there are violations of U.S. statutory law quite apart from violations of the Constitution. So the first question is, why did you write this book, and why did you write it the way you did, full of documentations, one after the other, official statements, inquiries, admissions, all readily footnoted? Well, I started off in the project after I read Clark's book, Against All Enemies, that he put out, I think it was around 2007. And I read the book, and he seemed to write a lot of things that happened in the Bush administration that seemed quite wrong, illegal, improper, call it what you will. But he wrote it from a perspective that I don't often see, which is really from an unbiased 
perspective, he didn't seem to be concerned at all with politics. He didn't seem to be concerned with the politics of the players. He just wrote what he saw. And my gift or curse in life seems to be to try to understand things. And I started looking at what he wrote about. And I quickly figured out that although he had a great grasp of the issues of the George W. Bush White House because he was intimately involved with it, he was just one man. And all he could write about are things that he knew about. And he was quite busy his whole career there. So I started putting together what I thought were facts and documentation. I documented the book because, frankly, I'm a nobody in this situation. I wasn't in the Iraq War. I didn't have a seat at the table. I wasn't involved in administration. And I figured out that what I had to say, just from my own sensitivities, wasn't really very valuable. So I decided to document what third parties had to say. And I was quite shocked to find out after all of that documentation. I think that if you put out information that isn't sourced, it has a far lower value than sourced data. I've never used WikiLeaks as a source because when you read something on WikiLeaks, it may well be valuable, but the problem is there's no responsibility. You can't find out who said it, you can't find out when they said it, and you can't find out the background of why that particular sentence was written. So I went the other way. In my book, I've quoted pieces from 90 different authors. Most would be well-known to this audience. I quoted out of President George W. Bush's book. I quoted from Condoleezza Rice's book. I quoted from our vice president, Dick Cheney's book, and a lot of people. And what I was really looking for was published quotes that were specific to a date and time. And I thought that way, people could read the book and make up their own conclusions from a lot of very specific data. I must say, it's an extremely uh, special type of writing style and documentation designed to inform people and change their minds if they swallowed the propaganda that Saddam Hussein, the dictator, had weapons of mass destruction, and he was dealing with technology that could reach the United States. Just for our listeners, I thought a good example was your page 236 and 237, where you, you start by saying, 9-16-2003, Cheney failed to dismiss widely discredited claim that Hussein might have played a role in 9-11. And then you go to 9-17-2003, where you cite, George W. Bush clarifies Cheney's statement, Hussein has been involved with al-Qaeda, has been involved with al-Qaeda, is in quotes. And then you go to 9-25-2003 with the titled, White House Concocted Faked Letter Showing Iraq Al-Qaeda Link to 9-11 Attacks. And that was followed by a statement by Colin Powell, who said just the opposite, that he had, quote, not seen a smoking gun, concrete evidence, end quote, of Hussein ties to Al-Qaeda. I've never seen an advocacy book work the documentation this way. And it's quite quite devastating, which leads me to ask, this book has been out some months now. What kind of reaction from Congress, from the press, from the Justice Department, from international legal institutions, Geneva Convention, 
that's what would be fascinating about this. What kind of reaction to this lawlessness, to this criminal invasion of Iraq that took over a million Iraqi lives and thousands of U.S. soldiers killed, injured, or subjected to diseases that were prevalent over there, like sandfly disease? What kind of reaction? Well, that's the amazing part. It has been the thundering sound of silence. When I finished the book, I offered the book to everybody that I had quoted, which was, I mentioned, about 90 authors. I offered it to Condoleezza Rice. I offered it to Dick Cheney. I offered it to the, uh, the Bush Library. I haven't heard from one person about the book. The initial run was 3,000 first editions. I think we're just about sold out in going into a second edition. But from all of the power and the information set forth, as you just mentioned, where quote after quote features things that are absolutely not true, there has been no response at all to it, which is frightening in many ways. Well, what's interesting is that the legal profession, I suppose, haven't responded. The law schools, the deans of law schools, professors of international law, the American Bar Association, no response from them either? No response for anybody. And I think part of the problem is everybody's dealing with their own worlds and their own problems. But the other is the politics under particularly Trump have been so fiery that people think a lot of good thoughts but are afraid to bring them out for fear of being satirized or made to look bad in the public light. That, to me, again, is, is the scariest part of all of this. The other part about the book that really surprised me is normally when you write an advocacy paper or book, there's a lot of facts on the other side. As they say, you know, there's three sides to every story. But in all of the books that we went through, and we went through 130 published books, plus government reports, plus other reports, there is really no data that counters what I've quoted in the book, but still the sound of silence from the world. What kind of coverage did it get? Were you interviewed at NPR, PBS, commercial radio, TV, New York Times Review, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal? What kind of coverage? None of those, and I'm not sure why. I think they may be afraid of the topic, which is shocking because that's what they're supposed to do. What I would love to do is face off with somebody that is a great W. Bush supporter, and I'd love to see some facts and data that refute any parts of the book not just opinions, but actual facts and data. Well, unless anybody think this is a left-wing attack on George W. Bush, I mean, you have all kinds of statements by Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, congressional inquiries. You even on page 238, you say, Congressman Ron Paul, a Libertarian, Congressman Ron Paul, no connection between Hussein and 9-11. Real reasons for Iraq war include, quote, this is Ron Paul being quoted, quote, oil, neoconservative empire building, and our support for Israel, end quote. And you quote the September 11 commission, which says no collaborative relationship between Iraq and al-Qaeda. Of course, Ron Paul famously said Bush and Cheney lied us into the Iraq war. These were bald-faced falsifications, and in your documentation, you show how Bush 
didn't wait for the U.N. inspectors to finish their job. It was just a matter of weeks before he then launched his invasion in March of 2003. Did you get any response from the Iraqis, the victims of all this? No, but my wife and I are scheduled to go to Pakistan later this year, depending on the virus. And in the trip, we hope to go to Iraq. I've never been there, and I would love to talk to some of the people in government there. And I joke with my wife that I'll bring a suitcase full of books. Well, this is a pretty extraordinary aftermath of your book. I mean, what does this say about any kind of institutions that are committed by their own position to the rule of law, domestic law, constitutional observance, international law, and all you got was a deafening silence? I thought it was interesting yesterday when I happened to check Fox News regularly, and one of the feature stories was why Biden's dog had bitten two people, that it showed there were problems in the White House of pressures and emotions. And of all of the pressures that we have and the problems we have in this country and internationally, that they're talking about why a dog bit somebody, I thought was emblematic of really a lack of seriousness in presenting real people's problems to real people. Well, it certainly reflects an amazing decay, because usually in the past, like on the event now more, there are mavericks in Congress, Senator Wayne Morris, for example, and others who would speak up early, stand tall, challenge Lyndon Johnson. Nobody in the Congress? Nobody in the Congress. I would love to be challenged by a member of Congress. I would love to be challenged by a member of or friend of the George W. Bush administration or anybody, because I've documented virtually everything on the path of these three crimes. Well, for example, on page 284 in your book, you cite January 13, 2005, the federal government's own National Intelligence Council's report, and they suggest that a war in Iraq would create terrorist haven. Well, ISIS certainly fulfilled that projection. So this is a continuing situation here. People in this country might think it's a matter of the past and let George W. Bush and Dick Cheney regale their retirement with big speech fees and book advances and accolades from people like Bill Clinton, who seems to make a small hobby of praising George W. Bush and talking about his charities. In the meantime, the wreckage goes on. The wreckage in Iraq goes on. The wreckage in Libya, Hillary's war, goes on. And it's all over the Middle East, and it's boomeranging against us. All empires devour themselves, devoured our budgets for public works or infrastructure for years because of the huge allocation to the military budget. Well, you're a persistent person, Steve Markoff. What are you going to do about this deafening silence? Or what can you do? Well, what, what I have been doing is I'm trying to go public. I love being on your show because of your audience. And your audience thinks about things, and they're hearing about the book. And I think that's very valuable. I've just put out more money for digital advertising to try to get to the people, the decision makers. I'm going to be sending out free books to some of the people that you mentioned that my publisher did not. And I'm just going to keep at it. I mean, to me, this is very important. And, and let me bring in one other point that a lot of people don't think about. There are a lot of people that look at George Bush 
since his presidency, and they say, well, gee, you know, he's been a, a pretty good guy. He's really been helpful. He's been more of an elder statesman, and we should kind of give him a pass because he's been a nice guy. Well, if you have a neighbor that murders three people, and after the murder, you know, he brings in stray dogs, and he's nice to people, and he brings you a cake when you move in, still a murderer. And I think that one of the problems, and I'm going to go off my script of, of documentation for just a minute and say, I believe that one of the reasons that Donald Trump was able to attack our democracy in the way he did is that he looked back at George W. Bush and said to himself, look at all the terrible things that guy did, and he's never had to pay for it. And I think, and again, this is my speculation, that doing nothing to bring George Bush to justice through a legal process emboldened Donald Trump. I think you're right. It emboldened Barack Obama. He expanded the illegal drone warfare to killing people who he didn't even have evidence that they were an imminent threat to the U.S. They were called signature strikes. They would spot some young men in a roadside in Yemen talking, and they'd say, oh, our algorithm means that these young men fit the profile of terrorists conspiring. Push the button. And they'd push the button from Virginia, and they'd vaporize these young men. This was all reported in the New York Times in a celebrated page one article. Signature strikes. You're right. The lawlessness of Bush set the stage for the lawlessness of Obama and the lawlessness on an even bigger scale, domestically at least, of Donald J. Trump. Well, let's ask another aftermath question. Have you been able to put any letters to the editor or any op-eds in various publications about this book? I have written some, and they have not been published. Well, you see, censorship comes in many forms. One of it is a colossal moral indifference to official crimes at the highest levels of our government. Did the Nation magazine, the Progressive magazine, Washington Monthly, in these times certified progressive anti-war rule of law type magazine did they give you any attention the answer is no don't you find this incredible i find it i wouldn't say incredible i would say very depressing that here we have documented evidence that seems to have less value to public at least to the producers for the public than wild opinions lies made up stories and it's it's just quite sad but somebody has to do it. Somebody has to put the data out there because there are people that have read it. We have sold a fair amount of books. It's a niche market, we understand. But the problem is getting people to act when they have all these other issues that they're dealing with in their daily lives. It is for sale. No one censored it in the bookstores or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble website, did they? No, no, it's widely available. You can buy The Case Against George W. Bush, Amazon, and many other booksellers. And what about this proposal? Sometimes when members of Congress get letters from their constituents, they pay more attention than they would to people writing them letters outside their own district or state. What if some of our listeners wanted to send your book to their senator or their representative? Would you cooperate with that? A hundred percent. I would love it. I think it would be a valuable service for the country and for the American public. 
Well, why don't you give them your website and see if they would send you their letter to their representative, and then it could be included in a book directly to their office. That would be terrific. Probably the best, they can send it right to my personal website, which is S as in Steve, C as in Charles, Markoff, M-A-R-K-O-F-F, at AOL. And if they wanted to offer the book, and if it was accepted, I would send it out at no cost to as many people in office as I could. Well, that's a very important invitation, listeners. But it would be good if you conveyed some words to your senator about the book, about what you want the Congress to do, to reopen hearings, whatever, just so when your senators and representatives get these books by Steve Markoff, the case against George W. Bush, they'll think it came as it did come in a personal way, not simply requesting Steve to send a book. So send a paragraph or two to this website and say it again, Steve, slowly. My email is S as in Steve, C as in Charles, Markoff, M-A-R-K-O-F-F at AOL. And you'll do this for the listener at no cost. At no cost. Now, I wanted to take this opportunity, Steve, to have David Feldman read a letter from Thomas Young, who was the severely injured veteran from Iraq War, sent there by Bush and Cheney, and became the subject of the celebrated documentary produced by Phil Donahue called Body of War. And just before Thomas died, after agonizing pain and multiple operations and trying to be an advocate for peace at public gatherings, he wrote a final letter on March 19, 2013, to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. It was written in a ways that would certainly get to their offices or to other addresses so that they couldn't say they didn't get the letter, and it was also given some media treatment so that it would have been picked up by Bush and Cheney's secretariats. This letter that David is going to read, I think, drives home the emotional intelligence, the moral claim, in addition to the deadly casualties and destruction of an entire nation of Iraq. And this letter received no acknowledgement and no response from either George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. David, can you read this, please? Yes. This is a letter, Thomas Young's letter to Bush and Cheney, the last letter to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney from Thomas Young. I write this letter on the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War on behalf of my fellow Iraq War veterans. I write this letter on behalf of the 4,488 soldiers and Marines who died in Iraq. I write this letter on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of veterans who have been wounded and on behalf of those whose wounds, physical and psychological, have destroyed their lives. I am one of those gravely wounded. I was paralyzed in an insurgent ambush in 2004 in Sadr City. My life is coming to an end. I am living under hospice care. I write this letter on behalf of husbands and wives who have lost spouses, on behalf of children who have lost a parent, 
on behalf of the fathers and mothers who have lost sons and daughters, and on behalf of those who care for the many thousands of my fellow veterans who have brain injuries. I write this letter on behalf of those veterans whose trauma and self-revulsion for what they have witnessed, endured, and done in Iraq have led to suicide, and on behalf of the active-duty soldiers and Marines who commit, on average, a suicide a day. I write this letter on behalf of the some one million Iraqi dead and on behalf of the countless Iraqi wounded. I write this letter on behalf of us all, the human detritus your war has left behind, those who will spend their lives in unending pain and grief. I write this letter, my last letter to you, Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney. I write not because I think you grasp the terrible human and moral consequences of your lies, manipulation, and thirst for wealth and power. I write this letter because before my own death, I want to make it clear that I and hundreds of thousands of my fellow veterans, along with millions of my fellow citizens, along with hundreds of millions more in Iraq and the Middle East, know fully who you are and what you have done. You may evade justice, but in our eyes, you are each guilty of egregious war crimes, of plunder, and finally of murder, including the murder of thousands of young Americans, my fellow veterans, whose future you stole. Your positions of authority, your millions of dollars of personal wealth, your public relations consultants, your privilege and your power cannot mask the hollowness of your character. You sent us to fight and die in Iraq after you, Mr. Cheney, dodged the draft in Vietnam, and you, Mr. Bush, went AWOL from your National Guard unit. Your cowardice and selfishness were established decades ago. You were not willing to risk yourselves for our nation, but you sent hundreds of thousands of young men and women to be sacrificed in a senseless war with no more thought than it takes to put out the garbage. I joined the Army two days after the 9-11 attacks. I joined the Army because our country had been attacked. I wanted to strike back at those who had killed more than 3,000 of my fellow citizens. I did not join the Army to go to Iraq, a country that had no part in the September 2001 attacks and did not pose a threat to its neighbors, much less to the United States. I did not join the Army to liberate Iraqis or to shut down mythical weapons of mass destruction facilities or to implant what you cynically called democracy in Baghdad and the Middle East. I did not join the army to rebuild Iraq, which at the time, you told us, could be paid for by Iraq's oil revenues. Instead, this war has cost the United States over $3 trillion. I especially did not join the army to carry out preemptive war. Preemptive war is illegal under international law. And it was you, Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney, who started this war. It is you who should pay the consequences. I would not be writing this letter if I had been wounded fighting in Afghanistan against those forces that carried out the attacks of 9-11. Had I been wounded there, I would still be miserable because of my physical deterioration and imminent death. 
but I would at least have the comfort of knowing that my injuries were a consequence of my own decision to defend the country I love. I would not have to lie in my bed, my body filled with painkillers, my life ebbing away, and deal with the fact that hundreds of thousands of human beings, including children, including myself, were sacrificed by you for little more than the greed of oil companies, for your alliance with the oil sheiks in Saudi Arabia and your insane visions of empire. I have, like many other disabled veterans, suffered from the inadequate and often inept care provided by the Veterans Administration. I have, like many other disabled veterans, come to realize that our mental and physical wounds are of no interest to you, perhaps of no interest to any politician. We were used, we were betrayed, and we have been abandoned. You, Mr. Bush, make much pretense of being a Christian, but isn't lying a sin? Isn't murder a sin? Aren't theft and selfish ambition sins? I'm not a Christian, but I believe in the Christian ideal. I believe that what you do to the least of your brothers, you finally do to yourself, to your own soul. My day of reckoning is upon me. Yours will come. I hope you will be put on trial, but mostly I hope, for your sakes, that you find the moral courage to face what you have done to me and to many, many others who deserved to live. I hope that before your time on earth ends, as mine is now ending, you will find the strength of character to stand before the American public and the world, and in particular, the Iraqi people, and beg for forgiveness. Wow. Well, Steve Markoff, what's your response to that? Well, I think I have two, two responses. Uh, number one, I have nothing against George W. Bush. He may be a nice guy. He may be a good father. He may be perhaps treats animals and his friends well. I'm looking at this as a prosecutor looks at somebody that they believe has broken the law. And so the second part is what I think should happen to George Bush is I think that there should be two serious nonpartisan inquiries. One in the United States for what I believe was his criminal negligence in disregarding this incredible amount of intel he received that we would be attacked by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And in disregarding it, did nothing to protect us. And of course, we were attacked on 9-11. And number two, there should be another nonpartisan investigation internationally regarding war crimes and crimes against humanity. I think they're separate issues. I think they should be looked at separately. And I think that if the conclusions of those investigations provide enough evidence, then he, I think he should be tried, as anybody else would. And if there's not enough evidence, then he should be left alone to enjoy his last years. And the Iraq War veterans should have a role in this endeavor, would you say? I don't think it's necessary. I don't. I think that there's so much data. I think injecting emotion probably would not help an independent investigation. Certainly somebody should be there from Iraq because they've seen the damage firsthand. But again, I think that the best investigations are really impartial, where the investigators are only looking at the facts and don't have a political bent one way or the other. 
I was mentioning that in building up the public opinion necessary for doing what you're suggesting, the Iraq war veterans should be in the forefront because they speak truth to power from their own experience and the loss of their comrades. But, you know, Thomas Young's letter, which David just read, was released to the media. And apart from one or two small stories, it got the same treatment your book got. It got deafening silence. It's not every day that a a war veteran in his last dying moments dictates a letter like this, and it was ignored. So this kind of moral numbness seems to be a very pervasive phenomenon. And, you know, you can have great documentation for a prosecutor's case, but the law tends to become dynamic from the moral impulses of its society. How would you address that? Did any religious leaders react to you at all? No, and you're asking a very important question for for our country and for all other countries. How do you get people energized to look at things that are outside their daily struggles, as bad as they may be? And I don't know the answer. You are correct in my view that one of the ways that this would get some traction would be to have those fought in the Iraq war and their family members and those on both sides of the war to come forward and start asking questions. Well, wait a minute, what were we doing there? Is it true it was all about oil? If it was all about oil, why were we lied to? Why does the government continue to lie about the Iraqi war? Was there a commission that really looked at the facts instead of doing it with one eye closed, which is what I believe? But you're talking about a very difficult issue. You wrote a very famous book back, I think it was around 1965, about, I think it was the Corvair, if my memory serves me right. And that book by itself caused a tremendous positive social change in America. It got rid of a car that was documentedly dangerous. That The problem is today having the same public outcry created by information and data. And it looks like today the world is much more interested across the board in emotions and angry people and screaming and threatening people than it is by people sitting down carefully, looking at documentation, looking at the facts, and coming to reasonable conclusions. Well, there's been a definite decline in the moral articulation of these matters in our country since Vietnam. I mean, there were all kinds of people speaking out against Vietnam, leaders from all segments and backgrounds in our society, not as much as the peace advocates wanted. And there were, of course, demonstrations and rallies and strikes and sit-ins and considerable turbulence even in Congress before it finally cut off aid from the executive branch, and that's the way the Vietnam War ended. They just cut off the money for the war. And it's inconceivable that that would not have happened in the invasion of Iraq, especially since the war was not declared. It was not an attack on an enemy backed by a powerful force. It just didn't happen. So it's obviously a consistent decline in the ability collectively of our society and its peoples to stand up against these kinds of violent transgressions. 
some people have called this the biggest strategic foreign policy disaster in our history because it continues to boomerang all over a huge part of Asia and Africa against us, not to mention the repercussions on millions of innocent people to this day. Steve, David, what are you thinking about all this? I wanted to ask, you may not know the answer to this, Stephen, but can George W. Bush travel to foreign countries anymore, or would he be arrested? I'm under the impression, and I've read, but I don't have verification, that there are a few countries that he will not go to. That he is, There are not arrest warrants for him per se, but I'm told and have viewed op-ed pieces that in certain countries he's concerned with his safety if he goes there from a legal perspective. One of the things that needs to be done, and I actually talked to Human Rights Watch last week, and I offered a, a grant, somebody needs to sit down, a competent, probably human rights lawyer, gather up all of the attempts to prosecute George W. Bush and others around him so we have a starting point and then walk back and say, okay, this is where we are. These are all the cases that have been filed against George W. Bush and others. This is the reason they didn't work, and decide what to do to continue this. But I think it's really Ralph's suggestion that we need people to write their elected representatives and tell them that it's time that we looked at this closely. Obviously, from my standpoint, I love them to offer the book, and I love people to read the book, because I think it's hard to read the book and, and not be outraged by not only the things that were done, but how openly they were done and how well-documented these outrages are. So I realize that's a bit self-serving, but I, I see well, that energy big, has to come. The focus on the Congress, of course, is well taken because Congress was the great institutional default. They did not use their constitutional authority to basically control the rush to the criminal war of aggression. After all, only Congress can declare war, only Congress can authorize funds, only Congress can appropriate funds, only Congress has the constitutional oversight function. They abandoned all of them. They became ink blots. And to recycle an aroused public's concern about this and focus it on Congress is a historical reassertion of a long overdue accountability by the public. Well, let me remind you of one point. Back in the fall of 2002, Congress gave George W. Bush the power to go to war. The problem with that was— A democratically-led Senate, by the way. Yes. And the problem was that they were given false and incomplete information. And it had nothing to do with Iraq, either. I believe that it did. I think that they gave him— the power to go into and after Iraq, although several of the senators at the time said, well, we gave him the power, but we know it won't be used unless it's appropriate or, or some weasel words to that well, effect. Well, as Bruce Fine, our international law expert, stated on this program in the past, Stephen, that doesn't amount to a declaration of war. They can't weasel around this with some authorization for the use of force, which was focused on the backers and attackers of 9-11. If they tried to link it to Iraq, you rebutted that with the documentation in your book that there was no connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. So anyway, that's for another 
<laughs> program. But I just wanted to point out also to show that this is not just coming from one part of the political spectrum. Judge Napolitano, who is the regular legal contributor on Fox News, a former state judge and the author of many books on constitutional law, which he has taught, stated publicly that during the Obama administration, he said, what is the Justice Department waiting for? They should be pursuing George W. Bush and Dick Cheney with criminal prosecution for their criminal invasion of Iraq. And he's quite a conservative scholar. So it does come from many angles of political backgrounds. David, do you have a comment or question? Well, I just wanted to point out that the Senate gave the war authorization in 2002, and it was in October, I believe, because they wanted to do it before the, the midterms, and the Democrats gave them the war authorization, and they ended up losing. The Democrats lost the Senate. Tom Daschle, who's now a lobbyist, lost to Trent Lott. They tried to placate the Republicans, and they ended up losing control of the Senate. I think that I'd have a slightly different take. I think that the W. Bush administration did a great job lying to and conning our Congress. They said things that scared Congress, and I think rightly so, that were simply lies and untruths and were known such at the time. They said that that it was covered, I think, earlier in the show, that somehow, and not even somehow, that Hussein was connected to 9-11, which was totally untrue and known to be untrue by the administration. So I think that if I were a Congress member back in, uh, and I believe it was October of 2002, and I was told the horror stories by top government officials, I could see myself... But the Democrats... Voting. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but in 90, 91, when did we... Go to war. 90, the first ninety-one. War. The first ninety-one. Yeah, there were a lot of Democrats who voted against that war authorization. They knew they were being lied to by Bush about the incubators being stolen in Kuwait. They were much more distrustful of the first George Herbert Walker Bush, who actually served. He actually served in the military, and they knew to vote against the war in Iraq. Well, back in the 80s is a really interesting story about how the United States propped up and kept helping Saddam Hussein, including sending them Scud missiles. And it's an amazing story in itself that has been kept from the American people. Well, you actually in your book have the vote count, member of Congress by member of Congress, don't you? I do, yes. So there were quite a few Democrats who voted against the Bush-Cheney move into Iraq, David. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been talking with Steve C. Markoff, the author or the compiler of the case against George W. Bush with a foreword by Richard A. Clark. And Steve, before you leave, can you slowly again give your website so anybody who wants to send a short letter to their senator and representative can send that to you and you will accompany that letter with a free copy of your book, The Case Against George W. Bush. And not only will I send a copy to the representative, but I'll also send a copy to the letter writer for the trouble that they've taken to do that. My name is Steve Markoff. My URL to write to is S is in Steve, C is in Charles, 
Markoff, M-A-R-K-O-F-F, at AOL.com. What a generous offer, Steve. Listeners, now you'll get a free book to you and a free book accompanied by your words to your senators and representatives. Thank you very much, Steve. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to explain some of these issues. All right. So lots of information there. That sounds like a quite an informative book. Going to wrap up the show here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Big thanks to all the patrons out there for helping keep this show afloat. If you are able, please do donate. I've uh, got a dollar a month or more. It would be super helpful at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev, as well as check out weeklyrev.org. Got a lot of show notes up there, and we'll have today's show notes up uh, later today. So thanks again so much for tuning in. Going to end the show with a couple of uh, anti-W songs. Why not? First is called Bush Leaguer by uh, Pearl Jam, and then To the World by Strike Anywhere. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll be back soon. Reports that most mass processed meat. Such a happening tailpipe of a party. Like sugar, the guest is so refined. A confidence man, but why so beleaguered? He's not a leader, he's a Texas leaguer. Swinging for the fence. Got lucky with a strike Drilling for fear makes the job simple Born on third, thinks he got a triple
Look how the ruts cling to my footsteps. The fatal invisible tool by which we define, we fight for our approval and fear our removal from the safety of fool. From the title forces of our persistence, not one, not one to take for granted. Our own rebel hymns and canted, sitting in the minds of the fortunate sons, brothers and spirits. Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, 
MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought or two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and watch the movie at the same time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, L W F L M O Y T. L W A F L M O Y T. That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent. Yeah. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. Five p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, uh, let's watch full it. length. Oh, wait, let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, yeah. See you next time. I was just leaving the theater. Cadillac convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. And, and I started to do some thinking. And 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 I had a really, really good time. Black, black, black. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. On the freeway. And I will cut the Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh the dude minds, man. 
Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States.